Uh, like John said, please open up your Bibles. We'll be working through Titus chapter 2 fairly carefully. You've got an outline if that's helpful. I'll pray and we'll get stuck into it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge right now our absolute and complete and total dependence on you. We depend on you, Father, in all things. But in particular right now, we depend on you for the hearing receiving of your word. Our Father, would you please, by the same spirit by which you wrote your word to us, would you work in us by that spirit that we might receive it with joy. Our Father, we pray we'd be excited by your word, rebuked by your word, challenged by your word and propelled out into the world by your word for your glory. Please would you do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a strange experience uh, not so long ago uh, when I was walking back to my car with my four uh, kids. Here they are here. If you can't see them, just over there. Um, I had, yeah, yeah, you can say, oh, that's okay. Uh, Dad's like that. Um, I had one on my back, uh, one on each hand and another one walking out the front. I wonder if you remember kids. And we had this uh, strange, uh, short little man stop us on the way. Uh, we'd seen this man and his wife kind of waddling toward us from some way off and, and we tried to get out of their way, but as we did, they swerved, stopped, stood, looked up at us and then this little strange short man with a thick European accent looked at me and said, are these all yours? <laughs> uh, yes, I said, kind of nervously, ready to add in they're not for sale, uh, to which... <laughs> Uh, to which he replied, and wait for it, real life, Ah, you are good Christian. God loves you. <laughs> he looked at his wife, they nodded at each other, and they walked off. <laughs> Me and the kids looked at each other. Uh, we didn't nod, but we walked off. <laughs> uh, it was a random kind of experience, but it raised an interesting question. The question is, what makes a good Christian? I assume most of us wouldn't take the strange approach of my short, strange friend and think it's all about having uh, four beautiful blonde kids. But if that's not what it is, what is it? What would it look like? How would you spot one? More importantly, I hope for lots of us in this room, how would you be one? And then uh, suppose for a moment you worked it out. Uh, Suppose you knew how to be a good Christian. The question then is why? Why would you do it? What would drive you forward? Why would you be one? Or is that really just a silly question? After all, for the Christian, it's once in, always in, isn't it? Once saved, always saved. Why bother with the why at all? See, I don't know about you, I got my ticket to heaven. Jesus paid the price of my admission. The song says, Jesus paid it all. It makes no difference to where I'm going, what my behavior's like on the way. So who cares if I'm a good Christian? Or is that getting a little bit dangerous, do you think? A little bit too cocky, maybe. Is the Christian life a little more carrot and stick, a little more reward and punishment than that? I remember we know the song, don't we? He knows if you're sleeping... He knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So, man, be good for goodness sake. That that was a lie for Santa, of course. But for God, it's true, isn't it? He really does know. And so is that why we should at least try to be a good Christian? 
How would you be a good Christian? Why would you be a good Christian? Titus 2 gives us the answer. Pick it up, verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. See, in contrast to that diseased teaching of those detestable teachers back in chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago, you, Titus, teach what is true. You, Titus, teach what is helpful. You, Titus, teach what lines up and fits with the healthy, helpful doctrine of God. To every member of the household, you may have noticed, and if you didn't look at it now, see as it was read, it's how Paul sets out this chapter to Titus, addressing every member of the household, addressing every one of us. You, Titus, teach God's people how to be good Christians. How's that? Verse 2. Older men. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. See, older men, I won't ask you to raise your hands, older men, so maybe open your eyes. This is you. Right here. Probably more the second than the first, I'd suggest. But this is you. Temperate. Not fickle, but faithful. Not reckless, but reliable. Men who the rest of us consider worth our respect. Men who the rest of us can count on, rely on, lean on when we need to. This is you, older men. Men who, do you see the verse, what does it say? Who are self-controlled rather than self-indulgent. Who do what is right rather than just what feels right, be that with your time or your temper or your money or your words. Older men, you are to be men of maturity, men of dignity, men who after all the experience you have by now have a healthy trust in God, healthy love for others, healthy perseverance in yourself. See, older men, think of those old crotchety guys in the balcony. Do you remember the ones in the Muppets? And then do the opposite of that. Think of those self-indulgent kind of spend the kids inheritance superannuation ads. You know the ones? And then do the opposite of that. Older men, you should be more Ned Flanders, less Homer Simpson. Or better yet, maybe more Mr. Darcy, less Mr. Wickham. And all the women, you should be like that too. Well, not exactly like that. You should be reverent, verse 3. Do you see it? That is, living at all times like God is in the room. That's reverent. Showing self-control in the way that you speak. Do you see it there? Self-control in the way that you drink. Do you see it there? See, for you, think desperate housewives. Well, hopefully just from the ads. <laughs> and then do the opposite of that. Be the kind of women that younger women can learn from. And then make the effort, take the initiative to see that they do. Verse 4. Then they can train the younger women. To do what? Younger women in the room? Here it comes. To love their husbands and children, which it turns out isn't always easy. To be self-controlled and pure. To be busy at home. To be kind. To be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign 
the Word of God. You know, we taught this passage on campus a couple of years ago. And when we got to this part, I think you could actually feel the temperature rise in the room. As all the boys kind of slunk a little lower in their chairs. And all the girls leaned forward with eyes thinning. You can understand it, can't you? I mean, what's going on here? Are we back to this? Some kind of chauvinist repression of jar-cooking women. Well, no, it turns out we're still in God's good, loving, liberating word. A word we can thank God for. We'll see that in a moment. But first notice what the verses don't say because it helps us understand what they do. First notice they don't say women must get married. There's no command here to marry. So I take it there's an expectation that most women will. So it speaks that expectation. Indeed, history tells us that's a reasonable expectation. Even in Australia, with the kind of alternatives to marriage, the attacks on marriage, still, I think it's right, two-thirds of women will get married. And so if you do, this is how you do it. Second notice, it doesn't say that the only place for a woman is inside the home. It's not what it says. It doesn't forbid work outside the home. There are lots of examples of working women in the Bible. Third, notice it doesn't say that a woman is less valuable or less able or less equal than a man. Because that's what we hear, isn't it? When we hear these verses, especially that phrase, do you know the one? Be subject to your husbands, or as other translations put it, submit to their husbands. Sounds like less equal, less able, less valuable. It's not what it means. See, submission in the Bible has nothing to do, really important we get this, nothing to do with value, ability or equality. It's about a role you choose within a particular relationship, in this case marriage. A role which very often requires great strength, great wisdom, great ability See, in the context of marriage, it's choosing to submit to the loving, sacrificial service of a husband. It's choosing to let him serve you for his good, your good, God's glory. So I want to say that's one of the reasons you can actually thank God even for these verses, ladies. Younger women, you can thank God for submission when it's submission like this. I want to say, too, you can thank God for permission, You can thank God that in these verses, God gives you permission to focus on the relationships that matter most. I want to say, in our society, that's permission that's largely been taken away. After in our society, if you're a housewife, what are you? You're just a housewife. If you're a stay-at-home mum, what are you? You're just a stay-at-home mum. As though loving your husband, raising your kids, managing your home is somehow second rate, second class, second best. But this is the thing so important for us to understand. Our society, our culture, God disagrees. He says your marriage, your family, your home are all vitally important. In fact, he thinks it's so important that in Titus chapter 2, he sets up a system of old women passing to young women who grow up to be older women who pass on to young women who grow up to be older women pass on to younger women so they don't forget this. Kent and Barbara Hughes in their book Disciplines of a Godly Family write, not politics, not the classroom, not the laboratory, not even the pulpit or the music stand. It's parenting. 
which is the greatest place of influence. To assume otherwise is to be held captive to the shriveled, secular delusion. You want to make a difference, there's the place it happens. Being a wife matters. Being a mum matters. And if younger women, you go up to be one, if younger women, you are one right now, you have an important, vital, influential role from God. Well, Paul turns to the younger man next. Just one command. Already younger men, heads up again. Here it comes. Be self-controlled. For crying out loud, be self-controlled. I added a bit in the middle. There are all sorts of jokes about this part of the Bible that, you know, guys can only concentrate one thing at one time. So Paul tells Titus, just tell them one thing this time. But regardless of the reason, the command's a really, really good one, isn't it? I want you to pause for a moment and imagine... What a difference it would make to the world if every single younger man just did this. Showed some self-control. Young men in self-control of their own desires instead of their desires controlling them. Younger men in control of their tempers instead of their tempers controlling them. Young men actually saying no to just some of the silly ideas that come inside their head, especially those put there by their mates. For example, not spinning the wheels every time they hit gravel. Not drinking too much when you're out again with the boys. Not talking about women the way your mates do, not being a kind of alpha male when some other guy bumps you, not wasting your life gaming every night, all night. Paul says, be a man. Show some self-control. Then he turns to slaves. They're last on the list. And well, of course, none of us are slaves in the way they were, not uh, today. It doesn't take long to realise where these uh, principles could apply, does it? For example, doing what your master says, trying to please him, not being smart and talking back, not stealing the office stapler or stationery, turning up on time, every time, doing what you're asked, when you're asked to do it. The sort of thing you do at work, isn't it? The sort of thing some of you can do in your study with your professors. The sort of thing some of you can do at school. It's how to be a good Christian at work, or at least part of it. How to be a good Christian, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, slaves. The question is, though, question we asked at the start, second big question, why? See, I don't know if you noticed as we read it through, this is very countercultural stuff. This is not standard living. I mean, self-controlled younger men, submissive younger women. When was the last time you saw a commercial, magazine, TV celebrity? Hold that up as something to aspire to. Even reverent older women, respectful older men. I don't know about you, but I reckon even they sound a little boring, a little restrictive. I reckon there's one thing you don't want to be today. It's boring, restricted. The question again is why? Why would you choose this? 
Well, we got something with answers. You see it, five, verse 5, verse 8, verse 10. God gave a kind of consequential motivation. The results of this sort of behavior, not so much results for us, do you notice? Really important to notice. But results for him, consequences for him, for his reputation, his message, his people. The question I want to ask is, what are the causal motivations? What on earth will drive you, get you up out of bed, make you think, I want to do that today? That's what Paul tells us from verse 11. It's the grace of God, the blessed hope, and the purpose of your salvation. Pick it up, verse 11. For, in other words, because, in other words, here's why. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. See, so often Christianity is kind of bundled up with every other religion. With this kind of carrot and stick approach to life, with a kind of be good or else. Or be good and here's what you might win. Uh, Chris and I were reading this just a week ago, and we noticed it's not just religion. It's pretty much how all of us always do motivation. Parents, think for a moment how you motivate your kids. All of us, think about how you motivate yourself. Think about how your parents, your teachers, your coaches, your latest diet book tries to motivate you. Isabel and I have this little thing going on at the moment when uh, she's mucking up and when she knows it, she's not listening, this is good, and I knows it, she knows it, and I say to her, Isabel, what colour do you want me to smack your bottom? And she picks a colour, usually something pretty wild, green, purple, and I think, yeah, maybe pick something closer to pink. And, and after she picks the colour, she pretty quickly stops what she's doing. It's all of us all the time. It's motivation by carrot or it's motivation by stick. But here's the problem. Here's the great news. It is never, ever that way with God. It is never, ever that way for the Christian. It is not the hope of earning heaven. It is not the fear of avoiding hell. That motivates Christian living. Christian motivation comes from a place entirely different. Not us earning, not us avoiding. It comes from God giving. From God giving his son for us. That's the grace that has appeared. That's the grace that saves. And here, Titus 2, that's the grace that trains. Author Tim Keller writes, All change, all true Christian change, comes from deepening your understanding of the salvation of Christ and living out the changes that understanding creates in your heart. Uh, Owen and I read a book during the week that said, it's not as though the gospel is God's power to, to get us started in the Christian life, and that's all up to us. The gospel is the power of God to keep us safe and keep us moving along the road. It's like that woman, do you remember? The one that comes to Jesus with the, the perfume and the weeping and the hair and the drying his feet with the tears, well, wetting him with the tears, drying him with the hair. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. 
See, she who was forgiven much loves much. She who knows God's grace to her in the past, already poured out in Jesus, and for her the cross was yet to come, she cannot help but respond with a life lived for him. It's the grace of God that drives us from behind into Christian living. And it's the blessed hope that pulls us forward in the same direction. I remember being trapped. I mean, enjoying a car ride with Erica's family. Uh, Very soon, it was a 12-hour car ride. Very soon after saying, I do. uh, And Erica's dad had control of the tape deck. DJ, fathery, father-in-law or something. And the high rotation uh, for this 12-hour road trip was country music legend. Slim Dusty. And in particular, his song that sings over and over. I'll do my best Owen impersonation. Looking forward, looking back. We all sang it together. Looking forward, looking... And see, that's what Paul says we're to do. Look forward to the blessed hope of Jesus' return. See it, verse 13? Our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And look back to what he's already accomplished on the cross. Look back to appearance number one, when Jesus came in grace. Look forward to appearance number two, when he will come in glory. The Christian life is lived between these two appearings of Jesus. And the Christian life is motivated by these two appearings of Jesus. The grace of God the blessed hope, and finally, the purpose of our salvation. See, just as God gave his son, so Jesus gave himself. And why? Did you see verse 14? To redeem us, to buy us back, so that we could do what we were always made to do. Now, there's a great story of a boy who spends hours and hours making his own little model boat. And when it's finished, he takes it down to the river and he puts it in the water and he plays with it every day. But one day he's playing and the wind picks up. It's a strong wind. It takes the boat and it drives it down the river and he's chased along the bank, but he can't catch up and his boat is gone. He thinks lost forever. And months pass and I suppose he's got that little kid mournful, I'm unhappy face. Poor mum and dad. But months passed until one day the boy is walking past a second-hand shop and what does he see in the window? Oh, come on, you know the answer. It's his boat. And he races inside and what does he do? He buys back his boat. He redeems his boat. And he holds his boat in his little boy hands and he says, now you are doubly mine. It's an articulate little boy. Let's make him eight. I built you and I bought you. Now you are doubly mine. You see, that's what Jesus says to us. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. He built us in the beginning. He bought us at the cross. If we are Christian, we are doubly his. And this is the point. We, you, if you are Christian, are his for a reason. You've been built You've been bought for a purpose. It's just as the boy did with his boat. I mean, can you imagine the story? The boy, he goes in, he redeems his boat, and he brings it home, and then all he does is shoves it up on the shelf, at the back of the shelf, where it can gather dust. 
It would make no sense. No, he bought the boat so the boat could set sail. He bought back his boat so the boat could do what the boat was made to do and that's why Jesus bought us to to see it. Verse 14, read it with me out loud. Let's do it. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good works. Did I say it wrong? What is good works? Uh, thanks for pointing it out. <laughs> the point, though, is clear, though, right? He bought us to do good. He gave himself for us that we might give himself for him. That's why it happened. He gave himself for us that we might give ourselves to doing good works. If your salvation is only salvation from, it is not true salvation. We are saved from, and you notice it's all wickedness, from an ungodly life, and we are saved for a life of doing good. And do you see, that's why the Christian will live the good life. Because that's the purpose of our salvation. So if you're a believer, what I want to suggest you do right now, find yourself on that list, Titus chapter 2. Pick out just one of the good works you were built to do. Maybe mark it on your outline, lock it in your brain, type it on your phone, and try for one week to do it. Not so you can earn heaven, not so you can avoid hell, but because of the grace of God, the blessed hope, because you know that's the purpose of your salvation. And I want to say too, if you're not a believer in your room, in this room, please, please, please don't make the mistake of starting from the works and working back. You can't do it. There's no point doing it. Instead, come to Jesus like we have. Receive the grace and the hope and the purpose we have in him. And then let him motivate you to be a good Christian. Let's pray. Let's pray.